This episode is sponsored by Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenems might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenems, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends from your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenums, to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have first-hand locums experience. Locumstory.com is a perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, and you are tuned into our OITE slash R board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, and we are talking some spine. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome to the podcast. We typically have weekly episodes on different orthopedic topics, but this is our series on kind of just a review of the high yield material that we need for the test so we have already done episodes or series on trauma basic science as well as sports and now we are on to some spine so hit the subscribe button if you have not already please tell one friend that would help us out a bunch and without further ado let's go ahead and get into today's episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole But what are some physical um, exam findings that may be positive in patients with lumbar spinal stenosis? Uh, so one of them is kind of the opposite of what you were just talking about, where um, these patients, they find relief if they uh, like hunch over a shopping cart or they sit and they sit with poor posture because that helps their back pain. Uh, so if you force them into hyperextension uh, in the lumbar spine, then that may worsen uh, their symptoms and be positive for spinal stenosis. Um, also, uh, they may complain of uh, less pain going upstairs because they're able to uh, um, flex over while they walk upstairs and more pain with going downstairs, similar to what you were talking about with walking downhills will cause them to be more in extension and lead to worse pain. Whereas walking uphills, they're in more flexion and, and uh, make their pain a little bit less. Um, you can have weakness, uh, like you said, with some either ridiculous symptoms or, or leg symptoms. Um, but uh, these usually are not always present. It's usually more of a pain related issue than a nerve related issue. Um, and so what are some of the non-op treatments for patients with lumbar spine stenosis? I feel like we are uh, hearing a pattern here. Again, it's going to be um, yeah. acetaminophen, NSAIDs, therapy, epidural steroid injections. And in some patients, um, a transforaminal nerve block um, may also help them. And kind of going along that, along that, you know, along those lines, where does the facet joint get its innervation from? Uh, that is going to be uh, the 
medial branch of the dorsal primary ramus and sinuvertebral nerve. And um, if you either have a picture of like the lumbar spine open in netters or you have an axial image of an MRI up on Google or something, um, it kind of makes sense. The medial branch is uh, going to be uh, the one because the facet joint actually sits medial to the traversing nerve root itself. So it has to be the medial branch. It can't be the lateral branch because the lateral branch is going to continue more lateral and outside of the spinal uh, canal and nerve uh, root itself. And so again, the medial branch of the dorsal primary uh, rami and sinuvertebral nerve is going to be the facet joint innervation. And then what are some of the surgical indications for patients with uh, spine stenosis? Again, these are going to be the patients that don't improve with non-operative treatment, like exhaustive non-operative treatment. And it just depends on where the stenosis area is. That is when you, that's when you, um, uh, when you, you just decompress the stenosis area. So, uh, you know, possible, you know, options may be a laminectomy plus a partial medial facetectomy. Um, that's commonly performed. Uh, laminotomy and hemilaminectomies are also options. Um, and you also know, you know, fusion may not be needed if no signs of instability or significant deformity is present. And we talked a little bit earlier, you know, some things that may lead to instability. If you, you know, if you, I, at least I, iatrogenic instability, if you take more than, um, a hundred percent of one facet joint, uh, 50% of bilateral facet joints, if there's a pars inticular, uh, um, defect, now, those are all things that may clue you towards instability or maybe some spinal lolisthesis. Um, so again, you know, with these patients, a laminectomy plus a partial medial facetectomy is commonly performed. Uh, if you have foraminal stenosis, uh, these are patients that may possibly benefit from a medial facetectomy and resection of their superior articular process. And uh, one of the, you know, one of the studies out there is kind of called the, the SPORT trial. Um, and one of the things from the sport trial that they noted is that they had uh, the patients that had lumbar stenosis that had surgery resulted in better pain relief function and patient satisfaction uh, between four and eight years of follow-up. And the name of this article is, is uh, it was published in 2014 by Dr. Lurie. And the name of this is surgical versus non-operative treatment for lumbar disc herniation, eight-year results for the Spine Patient Outcomes Research Trial or the SPORT trial. Uh, so you can look that up and read, read a little bit more about that. So we talked about herniated disc. Uh, we talked about lumbar spinal stenosis. Uh, what are the main types of spondylolisthesis? Yeah, and one thing for spondylolisthesis, that means that one vertebral body is translated anterior on top of the other more commonly found at L4-5 and L5-S1. Um, and so the types you can have are isthmic. Um, you can have degenerative, which is seen in the older population. Uh, you can have traumatic, uh, pathologic from uh, metastatic or primary tumor, uh, iatrogenic from, like you said, if uh, uh, you or a colleague out in practice uh, uh, accidentally 
resects the pars interarticularis rather than the facet joint that they were aiming for, uh, that can cause a spondylolisthesis. Um, you have dysplastic spondylolisthesis. Uh, so it's good to know the different types of uh, spondylolisthesis and um, they they really only become an issue though when they are symptomatic. And so uh, one of the main types you'll see either out in practice or on test questions is going to be the degenerative type because that just happens as uh, we age in certain uh, people. And so what is degenerative spondy? Yeah, so degenerative spondylolisthesis, that's when you have anterior translation of the cephalodad uh, or the, the, the more superior, the more cranial vertebral body. And uh, when you compare it to the more caudal vertebral body and, um, you know, the kind of the way that this happens, you have disc degeneration, which leads to facet joint degeneration, which leads to instability. Uh, so degenerative spondylolisthesis is going to be more common in women. And some of the symptoms of degenerative spondylolisthesis is they may have mechanical back pain that is going to be better with rest. And depending on what areas you compress, they may also have leg pain as well. But again, degenerative spondylolisthesis is when you have anterior translation of the cranial vertebral body in relation to the uh, more um, caudal uh, vertebral body. Now, what is the treatment for degenerative spondylolisthesis? Well, first, you want to avoid surgery on these patients. <laughs> um, but uh, for a a fair number of them, they are going to progress, unfortunately, because they are, uh, it is an instability issue in the spine. And so you do have some surgical options for these patients. Um, uh, one is a decompression without fusion, which is usually uh, the wrong answer on the question because they have a spondylolisthesis. So if you decompress them, um, all you're really doing is taking out more of the posterior structures that are helping keep that vertebral body on top of uh, the more inferior one. And you can just have slip progression and uh, possibly, I think it's spondyloptosis is when oh, yeah. you get a complete dislocation of the uh, cephalad vertebral body on the more uh, caudal one. And then uh, decompression with fusion is most likely going to be the right answer on the test and most likely right answer in practice. Um, you are going to have higher fusion rates with instrumentation. Uh, why that has ever been an issue, I am not <laughs> sure, because at least to me, it just makes sense. Granted, I wasn't around doing spine surgeries back in the 70s and 80s when um we didn't have a lot of the pedicle screws or we didn't have a lot of the spine instrumentation for this. And they just did fusion by itself, but uh, you do get better fusion rates with instrumentation. So always choose decompression with fusion with instrumentation, if that's an answer choice with these patients with spondylolisthesis. And uh, what's a ismic spondylolisthesis? Yeah, so ismic spondylolisthesis is spondylolisthesis that results from a pars interarticularis defect. And one of the things to note for this is actually 
Um, the exiting nerve root is affected. So when you, know, when you have an L5, L1, ismic spinal ascesis, this is going to affect the L5 nerve root. And this is something that's uh, seen more often in adolescents. And, you know, they may complain of mechanical back pain. They say they may say they're walking a little bit different or they may have an altered gait and they may or may not have leg symptoms, you know, like radiating pain or numbness or anything down their leg. Um, for most of these patients that have this ismic spinal ascesis, most of them improve with non-operative treatment. Um, so again, ismic spinal ascesis is a spinal ascesis that results from a pars interarticularis defect. And we also mentioned earlier, the most sensitive way to detect this is with a SPECT um, um, test for imaging. Now, uh, what are some, what are some things you should note radiographically when you're evaluating for spinal ascesis? Uh, so things that you're looking for radiographically, um, uh, one is the Meyerding grade, and uh, this is something you will be pimped on uh, in spine clinic. Um, and it's uh, it's good to know four test questions because it can kind of push your hand one way or another, depending on what they're exactly asking. But it's based on grades one through five. One through four is divided into equal percentages. So zero to 25%, 25 to 50%, 50 to 75%, or 75 to 95 or 99%. And then uh, grade five is spondyloptosis, which means that the entire vertebral body has subluxed anteriorly and is no longer in correct articulation with the uh, inferior vertebral body. But yeah, so that's Meyerton grade. Then you are also looking for the slip angle and uh, pelvic tilt and pelvic incidence. And these things are uh, unfortunately almost worthless to discuss via <laughs> uh, a podcast because yeah. you have to have a... It's really hard. Yeah, you have to have a... Um, uh, what am I trying to say? A picture of like an x-ray radiograph, yeah. like a yeah. sagittal CT cut or something. And I, I have one in front of me. There we go. <laughs> now we're there. I know how useful it's going to be, but basically, <laughs> um, what you're looking for in terms of like, uh, pelvic incidence is, uh, going to be the, uh, how much your sacral slope and your pelvic tilt are contributing to the uh, angle of the sacrum. So, so your sacral slope is going to be uh, how much your sacrum is angled from parallel. And then your pelvic tilt is going to be how much your femoral heads are sitting anterior to uh, the mid portion of the S1 body. And I understand if you're listening to this and you're like, what the actual hell is <laughs> Because you have to have an image of this in front of yeah. you. And basically, um, pelvic incidence is, is always going to be a, a standard number. Uh, for a particular patient, because 
as the body moves, your sacral slope and pelvic tilt uh, move opposite of one another so that your pelvic incidence stays the same. That's essentially what it comes down to. So um, those are the sort of things you're looking for. And with a higher slip angle, you're more concerned that that patient will progress with a uh, greater um, sacral slope. You're going to be more concerned that that patient might progress. And then uh, with a greater pelvic tilt, their pelvis is tilted more forward and that's going to cause them to slip more too. So those are the, those are the kind of things you're looking for. And then um, when would you uh, indicate a patient for surgery if they had ismic spondylolisthesis? Yeah. So, you know, children and adolescents that have a high grade slip, you know, you're talking about like a grade three or grade four, where greater than 50, you know, 75% of the vertebral body has slipped in relation to the caudal vertebral body. Um, in children that have low grade slips, like this grade one or grade two slip, those patients may just be indicated for an insight to posterior lateral fusion. So you're not fusing the entire vertebra, um, but you're just fusing that posterior lateral portion of it. And that's just insight too. So you're not doing any type of reduction or anything. So you're holding it where it is. So again, children with low grade slips may uh, be ones that get an insight to posterior lateral fusion. And patients that have um, with spondylosis, with no degenerative joint disease, uh, not joint disease, degenerative disc disease, uh, no slip and no discogenic pain, these patients may undergo a PARS repair. Again, so, you know, a PARS repair is going to be indicated in a patient with spondylosis that have no degenerative disc disease, no slip, and no discogenic pain. So, again, they, this is somebody that just has that PARS interarticularis defect. And then for adults, adults that have low-grade slips, again, grade one to two slips where it may be only 25 to 50% of um, of anything that, you know, that, of the vertebral body that has slipped, there's a little bit of controversy between what type of fusion may, uh, may be best for the patient. You know, there's kind of controversy between a posterior lateral fusion versus a circumferential fusion. But in uh, grade three and four slips, you know, where you have almost 75, 90% has, has slipped, um, these, uh, these patients have higher fusion rates when you have some anterior column support. So these are the ones, uh, that's going to get a transosseous fusion. And then, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, um, data and, um, a lot of studies out there, uh, regarding the need for a reduction. I think overall the, at least from what I've read in my very limited, uh, non, um, spine fellowship, uh, non-board certified and spine uh, experience, uh, it, you know, it's, it, from what I've read, it, it states that, you know, kind of partial reduction and uh, it could be beneficial for these patients and is moving more towards uh, reducing these really high grade slips and then doing, um, you know, transosteous fusion on them. And uh, I think that that wraps up our degenerative lumbar spine stuff. We, we still have, you know, lumbar spine trauma, and uh, maybe some infectious stuff to do, but that is a degenerative low back pain. We have covered at least I think what needs to be covered for our exams and you know things that at least that we need need a note in clinic. Yeah, I'm going to cover one more quick thing. Um, oh yeah, go for it. For the uh, pelvic incidents, um, one thing they may test you on 
is that um, it is the one pelvic parameter that is correlated with the severity of the slip. So um, like a question, you can pull it up on either res study or, or ortho bullets, whatever you use. Um, I used both. I recommend ortho bullets, but not for any other reason other than I, I like that resource. Um, but basically what the, the questions we'll talk about are something like, um, let's see here, uh, which of the following uh, like measurements is going to most correlate with the severity of the patient's existing disease, meaning spondylolisthesis. And they may say like pelvic incidence plus pelvic tilt, sacral slope plus pelvic uh, incidence. I hate those questions. Yeah, sacral <laughs> slope plus pelvic tilt, which is the correct answer because it is that is what tells you the pelvic incidence and the pelvic incidence is what most correlates with the severity of the spondylolisthesis. That is, I think that's one test question that they'll that they'll ask during your five years as a resident. So, so that's uh, going to be sacral that. slope plus pelvic tilt. Plus pelvic tilt is the correct answer because yeah, that's that's the those are the two parameters for uh, calculating the pelvic incidence. Man, you know, I I know we still have some adult spinal deformity to, <laughs> to talk about at some point where we'll probably mention that stuff again, but yep. oh man, like I don't miss that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's uh, once you, once you get on the other side of it and um, it's obviously it, it's nothing that I, I completely forgotten, but now that I get a focus on the things that I want to focus on, including kind of tumor and, trauma it's it's definitely nice to to not have to really remember <laughs> to a t what the uh, Meyerding grades are and all of that stuff but um you'll get there you, you all oh, will yeah. this thing we'll, we'll get there oh with time and we still haven't um we still haven't done the on-call or joints yet so we, we still have um a little ways to go and yep. you know at least that, that'll be kind of relative to you and you know things that you'll you'll be doing in practice so Hopefully that'll be a little refresher and a little bit more, um, you know, more useful. Yeah. Either that or I'm going to look really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, everybody listening. Thank you all uh, for listening. Go ahead and uh, go ahead and hit that um, the, the like button or hit the uh, subscribe button and uh, go leave us a review and let us know how much you like our OITE reviews and our, I guess our OITE slash board reviews. I guess it's kind of a little bit of both. So, um, you know, until next time. All right. This episode is sponsored by Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenems might be the solution for you. And if you're considering Locum Tenems, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends from your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. 
locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenens to more complex questions about pay rages, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have first-hand locums experience. locumstory.com is a perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums.